Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story about my high school class ring. Uh, when uh, I was ordering my class ring as a sophomore in high school, we had the option in the order form to uh, have uh, something engraved on the inside of that ring. And the purpose of that, at least I think, I don't know this for certain, was so that uh, if you, in the event you ever lost your ring or something like that, someone could uh, look on the inside and see who it belonged to and be able to return it to uh, whomever they might need, uh, whoever it might belong to, I should say. Uh, but as I was filling out my specific order form, Siri's trying to help me preach this morning. No, I had it on silent. Uh, do with that whatever you want. Um, so I'm filling out the order form for uh, my uh, class ring, and I, I get to the part where you, you put in what you want engraved on the inside, and it occurred to me that it's a little redundant to put my name on the inside because the name, my name was already on the outside of the ring. You could already see it. So it didn't seem really all that necessary to me, which then presents an opportunity, an opportunity to do something creative, something different, uh, to really set yourself apart. At least that's what I was thinking. And, and so I thought about it a little bit, and it occurred to me that really what I should do is put a Bible verse there, spiritually astute 15-year-old as I was. And as I thought about it more, it occurred to me that really there was only uh, one Bible verse that was appropriate, and that verse was Philippians 4.13. And if you don't know or have forgotten or don't remember off the top of your head, Philippians 4.13, the Apostle Paul writes that I can do all things through him, referring to Jesus, who strengthens me. So I had my verse, it was going to be great, I'm filling out the form, I, I write it all out, and I have this distinct memory. I was sitting in biology class at Iberia R5, and I'm sitting there filling out this form, I write out Philippians 4.13 on the order form, and it occurs to me, as I look at it, I'm not 100% sure that's how you spell Philippians. And I thought to myself, I don't know if that's right, but, I mean, this is a big company. Surely they've got someone on the payroll whose job it is to spell check stuff like this. I can assure you they did not employ a spell checker, at least to my knowledge, and that I did not spell Philippians right on my high school class ring. And yet, I don't know, as I reflect on that story, I don't know if the bigger crime there is misspelling a book of the Bible, as big a crime as that is, or the way that my understanding of that one particular verse was being distorted as I wanted to use it in that context. I'm hardly the first or last person to, to make that error. Uh, we pull Philippians 4.13 out of context all the time to make it say whatever we want it to say. I, I noticed in watching college basketball in the past few weeks, there was a player who had Philippians 4.13 tattooed on their arm, and uh, at one point in the game, they went down and were injured, and I said to Whitney, I said, well, he's going to be fine. He has Philippians 4.13 tattooed on his arm, and she didn't laugh. I don't think she was hearing, didn't hear me. I don't know what the deal was there, um, but we take that verse out of context all the time to make it make that point, that God is going to give us strength. No matter what we might go through, uh, Jesus strengthens me. I can do anything I want, anything I set my mind to, because based on Philippians 4.13, Jesus has to give me the strength to be able to do so. And that wouldn't be a bad deal in itself. It, it's just, that's not what Paul's saying when he writes Philippians 4. Paul writes a book of Philippians from a prison cell. 
And as he's writing to the church in Philippi, he says to them that through all the good and the bad, through all the highs and lows of life that he has gone through, despite all his struggles, he has learned the secret of how to be content. And that secret is that no matter what life throws at him, he can endure it because Jesus gives him the strength to do so. And that's, that's the truth of Philippians 4.13. And it's a beautiful truth, far better than what, how we typically use that verse. Paul isn't saying you can do anything you set your mind to and Jesus has to write you a blank check so that you can do it. He's saying that no matter what we go through in life, Jesus goes with us. And yet so often we miss that deep truth of God giving us strength for whatever might come our way because we'd rather have the surface level truth that we can use Jesus for whatever we want. I say all of that because the story of Scripture we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, the two characters that Hebrews 11 highlights for us are, are characters who display faith in God's power. And they put their faith in God's power alone instead of putting their faith in what God's power can get them. And that might be a subtle difference, but I think it's one that's significant. From one perspective, we might come to this story we're going to be looking at this morning, and our takeaway might be that if we just have enough faith in God, then he will do for us whatever we want. I can't afford the new vehicle that I want right now, so if I just had enough faith, God would make it happen, money would show up, and then I'd be able to buy it. If I just trusted it in God a little more, my grades would go up, my health would improve, and as comforting as it might be for that to be the case, that there's a secret formula out there, we just need to trust God more, and then everything will go our way, that is not how Scripture reveals God to us. This passage calls us to have faith, but it calls us to have faith in God alone. Not faith in God as a means to an end, but faith in God as the end itself. Trusting that when we put our faith in Him, the result is not that God gives us what we want, but the result is that God gives us Himself. And life with God is far better than life found anywhere else. This morning we're going to be in the book of Joshua, and we're jumping forward quite a bit from the life of Moses that Curtis showed us last week. Uh, The nation of Israel has spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and now they're beginning to enter into the promised land that God had, had said he would give Abraham and his descendants centuries before. When the nation is going through this period of transition from one generation to the next, from the leadership of Moses to the leadership of Joshua... And the early chapters of this book walk us through that transition as Israel prepares for what's to come next. And they come in in Joshua chapter 6 to the city of Jericho. And we might think that the point of this story is Israel conquering the city of Jericho. But in reality, what we'll see is that God is calling his people to put their faith in him as he leads them into what he has in store. Because as the nation of Israel approaches the city of Jericho, God reveals the battle strategy to Joshua. And as far as military strategies go, it's not much to speak of. And I know a lot of you know this story already, but if you can, try to listen to these verses. If you're the leader receiving these directions, and then you know you have to turn around and explain all of this to someone else for all this to be carried out. From that perspective, this strategy can sound a little unsettling. But a perspective of faith points Joshua and the nation of Israel as a whole in a different direction. Let's read Joshua 6, verses 1 
to 7. It says, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. Notice, if you notice at the beginning of this story, the people of Jericho are in fear. And we got a hint of that back in Joshua chapter 2 when spies from Israel come to scope out the city of Jericho for the first time. They're told by Rahab, who we'll get to here in a little bit, that everyone in the region, everyone living in the land that God had promised to give to the descendants of Abraham, they are melting in fear because of the arrival of the nation of Israel. And that same fear is present here with the city on lockdown because of the Israelites. The text then tells us at the beginning of, of verse 2 that the Lord says something to Joshua. And we might expect this to be the battle strategy at this moment that God's going to tell Joshua about a secret entrance into the city that they can go through, something like that. That's not what we get. God doesn't act like how a movie script might expect. Instead, he calls his people to faith. And faith is necessary from Joshua and the rest of the nation of Israel in this story because of how God describes, because how God describes the situation does not match reality. Notice how the words of God begin to Joshua. It says, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. God's speaking in the past tense about something that's going to happen in the future. He's speaking as if something that has not yet begun has already been completed. And that sort of proclamation might come off as strange, maybe arrogant, maybe naive. I mean, you have this fortified city on lockdown, and sure, the people of Israel have seen God do some amazing things, but this would seem to be a tall order especially when God lines out the strategy. God proclaims the battle's already been decided, and because that's the case, the role Israel has to play is to walk around the city once a day for six days. Imagine being an average person in the nation of Israel, and Joshua comes back from talking with God with this message. He says, all right, everybody, God's given us the battle strategy. It's all worked out. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk around the city once a day for six days. And someone responds to Joshua, is that, that, that's all we have to do? And he said, well, no, I, f- I forgot the second part of the story. On the seventh day, we're going to walk around seven times. And then it's all, and we're going we're to blow some trumpets and we're going to yell and it's going to be great. It might not seem like much. It, it doesn't seem like the Israelites have a whole lot to do. And yet, God calls his people to faith. To trust him when he says he has delivered the city into their hands, even when the role God has for his people might seem small. God calls his people to put their faith in his power instead of in their own. Remember, that's the point of this story. God does not call us to faith in ourselves. God does not call us to a partial faith in him and a partial faith in ourselves. He calls us to faith in him above all else. 
and follow where he leads. And that's what happens over the rest of this chapter. And, and for as many low points as the nation of Israel has across the story of the Old Testament, and there are plenty, this is not one of them. They follow the commands of God. They experience victory as a result. While the method God lines out might seem strange, it was his trust in the power of God that leads to their victory, which is the point the book of Hebrews highlights for us when it summarizes this story in Hebrews eleven thirty. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. God's people trusted in God's power and experienced God's victory as a result. Trust in God is what leads to success for God's people. Not trust in our own might, our own genius, but trust in God as he leads us into a deeper understanding of who he is and what he's prepared. Joshua and Israel demonstrate here what this faith looks like, but it is not a lesson they have learned easily. Israel had been in a similar situation 40 years before uh, when they first entered into the promised land. They send 12 spies to go scope out the, uh, the, the land that God had promised to give them. The spies come back, and two of them, Joshua being one of them, are excited. They say, this is all going to work out great. God's going to provide for us. It's going to be incredible. The other 10 spies are hesitant. They think it might be too difficult. And the nation sides with the 10 spies instead of the two. So in response to the people's lack of faith, God says, all the adults who are doubting me, everyone who said that they're going to die in the wilderness... You're not going to get to enter into the promised land. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and your children are going to go in instead of you. And at this news, the people aren't, uh, realize they've made a mistake. They realize that they've disobeyed God, and they shouldn't have doubted him, and so they try to make up for it. They, they say, okay, oh, we changed our mind, God. We'll actually go do what you said to do. We're going to go uh, conquer the promised land like you said, and they go, and they think it's going to be great. And Numbers 14, verses 40 to 45, tell us, that early the next morning, they, meaning the people of Israel, set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. We're going to make up for what we did. We're going to go do it. But Moses said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. Faith trusting God's power above all else. A lack of faith, like we see there in Numbers 14, doubts God and then tries to make up for that doubt later by our own means instead of trusting in God's presence and God's goodness towards us. We live in a world that's anxious. A world driven by the question of what have you done for me lately? How have you proved yourself worthwhile and important? And the Israelites in Numbers 14 trying to compensate for their past mistakes by doing more in the future would fit right in with our world that always seems to think the solution is trying a little harder, achieving a little more so that you can prove yourself and be accepted. And those are not the terms on which our God operates. God does not call us to do as much as we can and then maybe he'll fill in the gaps. He calls us to trust in Him, to trust in who He is and what He's doing, 
and to give up our control, to give up our anxious toiling of trying to accomplish enough to instead participate in a life grounded in faith that He invites us to be a part of. A life motivated by self is, is narrow, always concerned with, with what we can do to build ourselves up, what we have to achieve, what we have to do, and, and wanting to use God for that end. But a life motivated by faith is vast. As God invites us to be a part of His work in setting the world right. And that sort of faith might take us in any number of directions, but no matter where it takes us, it has God and life with Him as the foundation. And that brings us to the second character that Hebrews 11 highlights in in these couple verses, Rahab. Rahab's introduced earlier in Joshua chapter 2 when these two spies from Israel come to scope out Jericho. We're told Rahab was a prostitute and and in addition to that an, an innkeeper of sorts, which seems to be why these two spies end up staying with her while they're in the city. And while these two spies are there, she hides them from the king of the city and tells them that they've already left and uh, so that they're not, they're not taken out by the king. And so after the king's men have left, she goes to them and she asks that her and her family would be spared. And I mentioned earlier, Rahab says to the spies that everyone in the land is melting in fear because of you, because of the nation of Israel. And that's most of the truth, but it is not the whole truth. The people aren't melting in fear because of the Israelites. They are melting in fear because of what they've heard about the Israelites' God. In Joshua 2, verses 9 to 11, it says, Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you for the lord your god is god in heaven above and on the earth below and so because of what rahab has heard about the god of israel and because of her kindness towards the spy she asks that her and her family would be spared when god gives jericho to his people and that's what happens at the end of joshua 6 in verses 22 and 23 text says that Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Because of Rahab's belief in this God of Israel, her and her entire family are spared from the destruction of the city, and are brought into the people of God. And it's important that we keep those events in the proper order, because it would be possible to misunderstand this story and take away that Rahab was spared because of her action. She did a good thing, and she got a good thing as a reward. And that is part of the story, but it is not the entire story. The story starts with Rahab's faith. Because of her belief in the God of Israel, she hides these spies, and then because of her faith in this God, she and her family enter into the people of God, not experiencing the consequences of sin against God as the rest of the city of Jericho does in this chapter. And that's what Hebrews highlights for us in Hebrews eleven thirty one, It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. 
Rahab understood that the, gods of, the God of Israel was superior to the gods of Jericho. And therefore she put her faith in God and was vindicated for that faith along with her entire family. Faith was the foundation of her deliverance. Before she did any action, she put her faith in God and then acted in light of that faith. And for that reason, her legacy of faith lives on in Hebrews and beyond. Rahab's part of the story ends in, in Joshua 6 with us being told that her and her family are put in a place outside the camp which seems to be a temporary arrangement of sorts so that they can purify themselves and then enter in to fully be a part of God's people. And we don't hear a whole lot more about Rahab in the Old Testament, but if we keep reading across the story of Scripture, eventually we get to the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy, giving us Jesus' family tree, and we might be reading along in that genealogy, and we get to Matthew 1, 5, and we find Rahab. Rahab the prostitute from Jericho is a part of the family tree of the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Her faith in God and acting upon that faith is just one part of this story that culminates in the arrival of Jesus as he comes to be the means through which all people can become a part of God's people through faith, trusting in him and his power above all else. And that sort of faith is a firm foundation that guides us through the highs and lows of life. It's a sort of faith we need as we live as God's people in this world. It's a faith that will not be blown here and there depending on our mood or the day, but it will firmly ground us in life with God. You might remember from high school in Homer's Odyssey, there's the story of Odysseus and his men as they encounter the sirens who would sing beautiful songs and would lure the sailors uh, close to the rocks through their singing until eventually their ships would crash on the rocks and they would die. And Odysseus wants to be the first man to hear the, the song of the sirens and live. And so he has all the men in his ship put wax in their ears so that they won't hear the singing. And then he ties himself to the mast of the ship. And, and his men are sailing the ship and they come upon the sirens. Uh, Odysseus hears their singing and he loses his mind. He wants to be released. He wants to get closer to their singing and his men don't let him. They, they tighten him. They, they get the rope even tighter around him on the ship. Even though he wants to be released, he is not allowed because his release would mean his death. And our faith in God is the rope that holds us to the mast even when we're disoriented. That's the sort of faith we need when life is uncertain. That's the sort of faith that can transform our anxiety into peace. It's the sort of faith that can turn our anger into contentment. It's the sort of faith that can turn our constant striving into a life before God as He draws us into a deeper dependence on Him. It's the sort of faith Joshua and Rahab show in this passage. They both do things that might seem irrational. Joshua and how he leads the people. Rahab and uh, trusting in Israel instead of her own people, and yet both are vindicated by God as he holds them fast in the midst of chaos and uncertainty. And it's a faith that is available to us as well when we truly put our trust in God and God alone. And the reason why I'm willing to make that claim is because we get this little insight into the foundation of the faith of Joshua right at the end of Joshua chapter 5, before all the events we've looked at this morning happen in Joshua chapter 6. And this is a place where it's worth reminding ourselves that the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles, as helpful as they are, they were not put there by the authors of Scripture. 
So sometimes we have to look past them to see what's really going on, and that happens here. Because before Joshua gets the directions in chapter 6 of how to go conquer the city of Jericho, he has this encounter with God at the end of Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua did so. The power of God does not show up to fight on behalf of his people. The power of God shows up to fight for himself, and he invites his people in to be a part. And that might seem strange, or might seem like splitting hairs at first glance, but ultimately, God is the one whose glory is being protected in this battle, as he judges the sin of the people of Jericho and establishes his people so that they might demonstrate to the world around them how God has called his people to live. God does not come alongside the Israelites because they've had this great idea to conquer the city of Jericho and he wants to help them do it. He fights for his own cause and invites the Israelites to be a part. And he works in the same way today. This is the God we trust in. We follow him and his glory as he invites us in that we might be called his people That's the God we put our faith in, a God who is holy. Joshua is commanded to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground, just as his predecessor Moses had had done when he first encountered God in Exodus chapter 3. Just as God showed up to Moses so that he could demonstrate to his people who were in slavery in Egypt that he was the one true God, the commander of God's army shows up here in Joshua chapter 5 so that his people and the city of Jericho might know he is the one true God who is to be trusted. This is the God that we worship. The God who rules over all things. The God who is not interested in being used for our battles, but calls us to trust in him as he fights the battles himself. He is not a God who exists to tend to our whims. He is not a God aligned with this side or that. He is a God who is over all things and calls us to trust in Him. To people who are weary, waiting for God to show up, wanting God to make their life easier, the book of Hebrews points back to the story of Joshua and the city of Jericho as a reminder that God can be trusted to accomplish His purposes even if the means might not make sense. And that's a message God's people need to be reminded of and maybe even today. God's power is not something available for us to trust in as he accomplishes his purposes in us. Living as people of faith means trusting in who God is and what he is doing. That does not mean there's nothing for us to do, but it does mean that we are to keep our priorities in line and trust in God above all else. Our faith in God is not a means to some other end. It is the end itself. And that's what we're pursuing as God's people together. Maybe you've never experienced life with God, and if that's true, let's talk today about what that looks like and how you can be a part of what God's doing in the world. 
Maybe you recognize in yourself this tendency to use God for yourself instead of trusting in Him alone. And if that's you, this sermon is not intended to shame you, but I want you to know that God has so much in store for you than whatever we might be trying to twist His arm into getting for ourselves. Maybe you feel like you're trusting in God, you're doing everything right, it's just not working out, God isn't doing what you expect, it doesn't seem to make sense. If that's you, find someone, whether it's me or someone else here this morning, so that you can walk through whatever is going on with your church family, so that you might come out of the other side trusting in God in a way that is deeper than you ever have before. I firmly believe God is present and working in us and around us, that He is inviting each and every one of us into life with Him, and so... Let's take those next steps of life with Him so that we might know His power in our lives and in the world around us. Let's pray. God, You are good. You rule over all things at all times. There's no place where You are not. There's nowhere we could go to get away from You and Your power and Your presence. For that reason, Father, we give you all praise for all time. We acknowledge you as our King, as our Lord, as our Savior. And we also acknowledge that we all are guilty of sin before you. We all had moments of wanting to use you for our own purposes instead of being used by you. So we thank you for your grace in those moments. We ask that you'd be with us through your Spirit to guide us as your people into life with you. Wherever any of us might be this morning, Father, our prayer is that you would guide us deeper into life with you. May we know you today. and May we go out from this place equipped to live as your people. It's in your Son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. Thank you